Good morning, College Park. I'm Bob Martin, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I am so grateful for this church family. I love this church family. And the fact that I can say I have been here for almost nine years now on staff. Uh, time flies. In fact, I brought a photo of me way back when in 2012, when I was a resident in children's ministry under Don Bartimus. So since that time, God has done so much. I am so grateful that he gave me my wonderful wife, Caroline. We met here at College Park. And uh, many of you guys may not know this, but we are expecting our first baby as well, due here in September. <laughs> so God has done so much. So it's been great to live multiple seasons of life with this church. I hope the same will be true of everyone worshiping with us today, finding a true church family and home. Now you guys have heard the phrase preaching to the choir. I am not preaching to the choir today, but as Jake mentioned, I am preaching to the staff, that wonderful assembly, as we prepare to invite everybody back, Lord willing, in August, when I cannot wait to see you in person. Now, before I got here to College Park, um, I lived for three and a half years up in the north suburbs of Chicago, going to seminary. And grad school is hard. Uh, it was for me. So I definitely remember the day when I walked across a platform and I got my degree, particularly because of seven words that were said to me out in that parking lot afterward by my dad. Son, I am so proud of you. This just meant the world to me. And maybe particularly because I don't have a great track record of hearing encouraging words in every life transition. Uh, I remember when I moved to the state of Indiana going into sixth grade, which for me was the beginning of middle school or junior high. And I thought, you know what? I'm short, but I've got my bowl cut. I've got my backpack on. I got my shoes laced up and I am ready for anything that big bad junior high is gonna throw my way until I walked up to the sixth grade classroom door and in front of me stood a hulking mass of boy, four inches taller than me, with his hair slicked back, wearing a big purple Phoenix Suns starter jacket. And he said to me the first seven words I ever heard in junior high, the fifth grade room is that way. Yeah, words are loaded. And that's exactly what we're gonna discover that God says to us in the book of Proverbs today. Our words are loaded. And there's only two ways that our words are gonna lead us, ruin and reward. So let's test out those two ways. First way is ruin. Now the book of Proverbs calls this way to ruin folly. I was so helped by Pastor Brad's definition of folly or foolishness just a couple weeks ago when he said, foolishness is doing whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, without reference to God. That was really helpful for me knowing the opposite of that wisdom is doing whatever God wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, with constant reference to God. Wisdom is skillful living under God. It's exactly what Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Unfortunately, folly plays itself out in words, and they lead to a place that nobody wants to be. Proverbs 10.14, the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. 
So what does the way of ruin with our words actually look like? Uh, let's look at four examples and then the result of where they lead. The first mouth, the first example is an open mouth. We love to talk. I love to talk. Um, but the problem is, the more we talk, the greater the likelihood that we're going to sin. That's exactly what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Let's not be tempted to be heard more than we want to be wise. Proverbs 18, 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. We don't have to speak every time. And we don't have to post or comment every time either. I think the, the, probably the best blog article that I've read all year was written way back in January, which seems like forever ago. And it was called, How to Mind Your Business When Everyone's Sharing Theirs. And it was, it was a, 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 by a Christian, a Christian editor, writing particularly about what Paul said to the Thessalonians when he said, aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. The author starts by saying, so how can we live quietly and mind our own affairs and at the same time stay involved online? By thinking carefully through what counts as our own affairs. My friends and family are my own affairs, Right? Communicating with them, caring for them. Additionally, subjects I know something about are my affairs. For this author, he's like, he loves Greek linguistics and things like that, but things that he really knows about. Uh, only two controversies are my own affairs. I've made them my business by doing the hard work of understanding my debate partners and finding constructive ways to speak to them. But by these standards, climate change is none of my business. Kanye West's true spiritual state isn't either nor are the Starbucks Christmas coffee cups or the legal complexities of military action in Iran. Then he continues, I'm not saying that these matters are unimportant, only that while I have the right to an opinion, I don't really need to have a public one. How could I possibly add value to these conversations? Social media tempts me to ignore the people I can actually benefit and focus instead on opining louder or faster than the next guy. One verse says it best in my opinion, Ephesians chapter four, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We need to be careful not to have an open mouth and just share our opinions and advice everywhere all the time, whether that's online or whether that's because you're a grandparent or a parent and you just think you know better than your children, right? Whether they're tiny or whether they're very big. Uh, or maybe whether you, it's because you're a young leader and you feel the need to be heard and seen in every single meeting by those who are higher above you. Our open mouths can lead to our ruin. Second example, lies. There's all kinds of lies that we live with. At work, don't we exaggerate our contributions to a project when it was a success? Or that we minimize our responsibilities when it was, it was a failure and it didn't go very well? Of course. 
in our friendships, don't we retell stories with ourselves as the hero and somebody else as the villain when it didn't really happen that way? Or when somebody asks us something sensitive, don't we cover up a little bit and not tell them how we're really doing because we feel the need to keep something secret? These are all lies that we live with. And lies are so tempting because they feel like they make the moment work. But that's just the problem. Lies only last for a moment. And then they start to be seen for what they are, destructive false pictures of what's actually going on. Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. And what does God think about lies? Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. God hates lies, at least in part, because falseness hides us from one another. Only truth makes intimacy possible. I can't be intimate with God and I can't be intimate with others unless I'm honest. Maybe some of us today need to repent of the phrase, I'm fine. Example number three, slander. Why do we talk bad about other people? Proverbs eleven twelve. whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. We are just looking for people to criticize. Our spouse, our children, our friend, our former friend, our politicians, our pastors, Question mark? I'm just saying, right? It doesn't matter who it is. When I was in high school, working my first job in produce at a grocery store, learning all about fruits and veggies, I was so intimidated being the high school kid hanging out with all these adults. But I learned something. Complaining is the universal language of the workplace. It's like most workplaces have the motto, if you can't say something nice, you'll fit right in. (laughs) And the thing we like to complain about most is people. Friends, don't become the whisperer, right? That's what Proverbs 18 talks about, that we whisper about other people. Proverbs 18, eight, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. That's why they call it juicy gossip, right? Don't be that person with your coworkers about your boss or with your friends, right? That you're the person they can go to to get that juicy bit of criticism about another person. Seasoned pastor Ray Ortland has said it this way, gossip is often perceived of as a little sin. Do you know how many people it takes to split a church? Not half the congregation, just two. One to start spreading the fiery negativity and another not to confront that behavior as a sin that it is. If we're not part of the problem, we're not part of the solution, and we're not willing to talk directly to the person involved who is, chances are we don't need to talk about that person. Fourth example, being argumentative. Was there ever a time when we needed this more? You and I, over the last five months, have gone through a torrent of challenges that none of us could have anticipated. But my question for us is, how is your temperature? Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who's patient 
calms a quarrel. Is your temper hot right now? Is that coming out in your words? Let this image sink in. Imagine a river with a wooden wall, a wooden dam built up, and there's one person standing in front of it, you with an ax, ready to smash a hole right through that thing. Now listen to this, Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. I love this advice. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. The best quarrels are the ones that never begin. Being argumentative applies to all of our relationships. But interestingly, Proverbs particularly applies it to marriages in a number of instances. And these verses are kind of funny, um, maybe because they're not funny. Perhaps you've heard one of these. Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's a picture of a husband who's better off sleeping on the roof than having to walk around in the house with a wife who's creating arguments. Wives, I do have to ask, are you making it easier for your husband to avoid you because you're creating arguments that don't need to happen? Now guess what? Proverbs doesn't just pick on wives. Proverbs 26, 21, as charcoal to hot embers, and wood to fire. So is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Leave it to God to give the barbecue analogy for the guys, right? (laughs) Husbands, are you reaching back into the wood stack of your memory of her faults so that you can put some kindling onto the fire of the arguments that you're having? You gotta repent of that. Let me just throw this out there to everybody, whether you are a wife or you are a husband or you are unmarried, some of us just need to go to this week to the person we spend the most time with and just say, I'm sorry for making it easy for you to avoid me. I commit to letting things go and to listening better. Get rid of your fire stack, right? All right, that was the four examples. Now what's the result of these words? Well, ruin. There's all kinds of ruin that Proverbs talks about that happen because of our words, right? Slicing up relationships and people, right? Like our our words are swords or, or having to bear the consequences for our words, like a rod for our own backs. There's all kinds of death deadly consequences with our words. Probably it's, it's said best in Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. But there's something even graver than this earthly death that our words bring. And it's that these words lead to judgment. Proverbs twenty two twelve says, the eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. Jesus says it even more clearly, Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Let that sink in. Every careless word we spoke will be judged. This way of ruin is painful, isn't it? But it's not the only way. There is a second way. Reward. Proverbs calls this way wisdom. Are you a wisdom speaker? What does that mean? 
It means pointing people to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of reality and the knowledge of what God wants from us, right? It's exactly what Proverbs says when it talks about it, right? It says that we are to fear God and that's the beginning of wisdom. There is reward for us that our words are like greater than jewels. Proverbs 20, 15. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. So just like we did before, let's look at four examples and the result of these kinds of words. First example, pondering. Now, pondering is the opposite of an open mouth. Instead of blurting out whatever we feel, we think before we speak. How many of you guys have ever used the phrase, yeah, I don't have a filter? Well, there's a problem. We need a filter, right? We do. Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. So let me encourage us this week, like you might be thinking to yourself already, this is too much and totally unrealistic, right? Do I have to constantly have a checkpoint for myself before I speak any word, Bob? If I had to stop and think before I spoke every single word, I would waste half my day. And frankly, like, that's not how life works, right? When I'm responding, it's reactive, it's spontaneous. I can't pause and ponder. Well, is pondering a mental checkpoint before we speak? Or is it way beforehand? I'm gonna argue that we need both. We need checkpoints, right? This week, just once, try this once. When you are tempted to say something, it's, you know it's coming out of your mouth and you're pretty sure it's gonna be sinful, stop. That's it, don't think about anything else, just stop. And in that moment, and then just like, just test and see for those 30 seconds of you not talking, what happens? Just, what happens? Uh, does it give the other person a little bit more time to speak? Do you feel your temperature rising? Do you feel the Lord's nudge about something that you should do or say that you just don't want to? We need checkpoints, but we also need to ponder beforehand. I imagine Jesus going up on the mountainside early in the morning before his disciples woke up asking, Father, give me your wisdom. And then he comes down that mountain and speaks such that people say of him, no one ever spoke like this man. I realize most of our lives are reactive and spontaneous. That's why we need both. Second example, truth. Truth, of course, is the opposite of lies. Proverbs 12, 19, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. When we speak truth, that lasts. Now, what is truth speaking? Well, we speak truth when we own our faults at home or at work, or when we share our lives vulnerably, or even when we address issues like sin happening in the lives of other people with care. But perhaps truth speaking is most beautifully pictured when we speak God's word to others. I can't improve on what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about this. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. 
The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. If you aren't speaking God's word to others, they need you. I need you. That word is nourishment for everybody that's involved. We need to speak truth. Third example, covering. Now, covering is the opposite of slander. Proverbs eleven twelve. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Wait, secrets? Bob, aren't secrets bad? Aren't Christians not supposed to keep secrets? Well, uh, let's listen to another proverb and see if we can catch what God's saying. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. When we know something bad about someone, we have two options. Slander them to others or cover them in love. And when we cover an offense, it doesn't just mean we're protecting them from other individuals who don't need to be involved. It can also mean forgiving them or even creating a safe environment where we can actually address issues that are going on. We need to cover people and care for them. After all, like, let's treat people who offend us as friends, to be one and protected, not as enemies to get even with. Fourth example, peace. What is better than a peaceful home? And all the mothers in the place said, amen, nothing, right? What is better than peace, right? This is huge for families and marriages, but I can attest from being single until I was age 31 that there was one major feature in a roommate that rose above all the other aspects of their virtue to me, and that was peace, right? We could differ drastically in our sense of humor or lack thereof, or our cleanliness or lack thereof, or bedtime or lack thereof, or whether ramen counts as a meal. But if that person could keep peace in the apartment with me and with the other men, they were good in my books. Peace is a gift that God gives us that we can give to others. Now, you're probably still asking the question though, What about when we have legitimate disagreements with people? What do we do then? Well, that's when we act like Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Uh, College Parker, who has adult children, shared with me this past week how this works out in his family. Uh, He has a wonderful daughter and son-in-law that are believers, but they don't agree on some issues. Here's how he said it. If we discuss the issues in a calm and respectful manner, both sides hear each other and we can persuade each other or agree to disagree. That is such a helpful example to me of how to disagree like a Christian. So what characterizes peaceful words? Well, they're gentle Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. That means they de-escalate and they focus on caring for the person. And they're patient. Proverbs 15.18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who's patient calms a quarrel. That means they can endure a heated situation without heating up themselves. 
Um, I know a mom of young kids in our church that I asked uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago how she feels like Proverbs applies to parenting, and she gave me permission to share these words. Um, she said, I'm challenged daily as to whether or not I believe the principles for words in Proverbs apply to parenting young children. I might have control my words the first time I have to correct my children, but if my patient and gentle words don't work the first time, I act as if God must be wrong, and in this case, it must be necessary to raise my voice to deal with disobedience. Do I spend as much time encouraging my children with loving words and telling them how thankful I am for the things I see God doing in their life as I do correcting them? Parents, do you feel that struggle? Or what about times when adults don't want to be at peace with us, right? They, they attack us. They don't forgive us. They put distance between us. What do we do then? Well, that's why Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That you're extending peace. You're speaking peacefully and you're eager for peace once they decide they want it too. Well, now we've seen the four examples. What's the result? Well, the result of these wise words is reward. These kinds of words make us glad. They bring healing. They bring life. That's exactly what Proverbs says about them. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Proverbs 12, 18, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. A friend of mine here at church shared with me recently, there was a season when he was out of work for eight months and that was a really hard season for him. Some of you guys know exactly what that feels like. But he shared with me this, when my wife or friends offered encouraging words to me, it really helped my anxiety. It meant more than they could know. Those words made him glad. They healed his anxiety. They brought him life. Maybe the life-giving words that you need to start putting into your life are three words that another college parker told me changed all of his relationships when he started saying them in his 40s. The three words were, please forgive me and begin to see freedom and life in your relationships. These are the kind of rewards we want, aren't they? We are sick and tired of seeing our words hurt other people. We hate what we say and how we say it or when we neglect to speak. And then we see other people have to pay for it. We want to see life come from our words all the time. But how do we get there? Uh, take a look at this image. There are results from our words. They can lead us to reward or ruin. But our words come from our hearts. You don't believe me? It's exactly what Jesus says. Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Proverbs agrees too. Proverbs chapter four. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Brothers and sisters, we don't have a word problem. We have a heart problem. 
And the only person that can get at our hearts isn't us, it's Jesus. This is not a moral sermon. This is a gospel sermon. There is good news for bad talkers and his name is Jesus. And the second you look to him and you say, I am done with my sin, God. I trust Jesus' suffering to be my forgiveness and I will follow him as savior and I will follow him as Lord. Your freedom begins. And if you've already become a Christian, remember that salvation. He has power not just in the past for you, but he can forgive you again and he can still change you. So let's find out what Jesus is like from 1 Peter chapter two. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, friends, there's three applications from Jesus today. The first one is to let Jesus suffer for you. Christ also suffered for you. That's what the verse says. Have you let him? Have you done exactly that and say, I am over my sin, I now belong to Christ and he can forgive and change everything about me? Or are you a Christian who says, yes, Jesus, I need to remember you suffered for me and today you can forgive me again. Today you can change me again because that suffering has changed everything in my life. Second application let Jesus meet with you. Our words start way before we start speaking them. They start when we meet with God. Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's exactly the cure that we need. Because after all, what are you trying to get with your words? Really, what are you trying to get? Is it control over a situation, entrust it to God. Is it defending yourself? Entrust yourself to God. Is it getting approval? Entrust yourself to God. Is it neglecting to speak to avoid discomfort? Entrust yourself to God. When you meet with Jesus this week, let him know your worst self so he can meet with you and he can point you to the place where you no longer have to get with your words because you're entrusting yourself to God. Third application, let Jesus be your speechwriter. What could it look like this week if everyone listening to this sermon stepped into this week and opened their mouths and it was said of them, well, no deceit was found in their mouth. When she was reviled, she didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Let's speak words to Jesus's glory in our home and on our Zoom calls and with our friendships and to our children and to this world. Whatever happened to that hulking mass 
of sixth grader? Well, he ended up becoming one of my best friends. And we have spoken many words to one another since that time. I actually texted him to let him know I was preaching this week. And he sent back these words. He said, I'll be praying that he speaks through you. Friends, may he speak through you this week. Our words are loaded. May they be loaded with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there was no deceit found in Jesus' mouth. He suffered and entrusted himself to you. I pray that those who've never put their faith in Jesus for eternal life would do so today and receive your forgiveness and your freedom and your power to follow you all their days. God, we know that Jesus isn't just our savior. He's also gonna come again to judge every careless word we speak. So would you meet with us this week and change our hearts so that we speak words that sound less like us and more like Jesus. So both we and the people we love around us are changed because of your words through us. In Jesus' name, everyone said together, amen.